Hey sis! From coast to coast, we're bridging the gap between the cisgender and transgender community, creating meaningful dialogue and space to learn and grow. Join us as we connect with our community, break down tough conversations, and get comfortable being better humans. Where you're seeing these forums talking about you, and they're calling you slurs and saying, oh yeah, you know, she probably does nothing but serve coffee, you know, and her place is in the kitchen, not in the lab, you know, things like that. It's amazing that, that you're still dealing with things like this, as if people cannot accept the fact that, yeah, maybe there is a, you know, BIPOC queer woman that is a scientist and is at the forefront of a lot of this. Since the scientific discovery of HIV in the early 80s, 79 million people have been infected with HIV and 36 million have lost their lives. On previous episodes, Isaac and I have had the honor to chat with members of our local community who are HIV positive. Something super exciting, though, is on the horizon with the development of COVID-19 vaccines, the possibility of an HIV vaccine has emerged and become more of a reality. Today, we have the great pleasure to chat with Chise, an American senior scientist in vaccine research and development who is not only supporting the efforts to develop the HIV vaccine, but also to debunk myths and advocate for accurate, up-to-date science communication. Chise Shive lives on the East Coast USA and has been a senior scientist in vaccine research and development for approximately 10 years. Her research focuses on uncovering mechanisms of viral pathogenesis and host immunity, then applying that knowledge toward development of safer and more effective vaccines. Currently, her research efforts have been dedicated to SARS-CoV-2, also known as COVID-19, as she helped develop and provide research for Moderna's vaccine that was co-developed with the NIAID. Outside of the pandemic, her research efforts have been dedicated to studying MERS-CoV, SARS-CoV, Zika, Ebola, DENV, HIV, RSV, influenza, and other emerging pathogens. When she is not at work or conducting research, she utilizes her fursonas and social media platforms to provide science communication to over 200,000 followers on Twitter under the at Scout. She also helps aid people's understanding of COVID-19 and the COVID vaccines. She is also a strong activist and a member of the BIPOC and 2SLGBTQ plus community. Thanks a million for coming on the podcast. It's great. Oh my gosh, absolutely. <laughs> it's lovely to meet you. Isaac yeah. is a very dear friend of mine, so it's a pleasure. Oh, that's so nice. Oh, you're, very, you're, uh... you're very sweet. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we're really excited to have you uh, join us today from south of the border. Um, why don't you start by telling us a little <laughs> bit about yourself and what inspired you to become a scientist? Absolutely. So I am technically, my official title is a senior scientist in vaccine development and research. However, I did not start in this field. It actually I took a couple of U-turns and a couple of left turns and a couple of right turns to get where I am right now. But initially, when I started school, um, I originally wanted to become a veterinarian. And I thought that I was going to have my own practice and I was going to get to work with horses all day. And that was just kind of my dream growing up for a minute. And what took a turn was... Um, when I was in my animal science program, so this is my bachelor's, um, my undergraduate career, I was in an anatomy class. Um, and my professor at the time taught a variety of classes. She taught anatomy and physiology. Um, and another class that she taught was lab animal management. 
And while I enjoyed my days working on the campus farm and working with horses and the other farm animals, um, lab animal management was really interesting to me because I got to see all kinds of cool stuff in the labs. Whereas if you were, you know, working on the campus farm, it's a little bit different. It's more on the, I would say more on the medical side, but lab animal management, you started to get into like, you know, working with vaccines and working with therapeutics and working with, you know, monoclonal antibodies, you know, that kind of thing. And working to kind of, I guess, not that I'm going to put it like this. Veterinary careers are fantastic because we all need to take care of our pets. They're our family. But I started to sit there and realize, did I want to go into a career where maybe I could eventually help people get through conditions, diseases, things that, you know, maybe you can make a breakthrough one day. You can help figure out a cure to cancer or HIV, like we're talking about today, or in days of, you know, pandemics. Was that something that I was interested in? And um, she suggested that I take lab animal management first semester. And to be honest, I really fell in love with it because of all the things that this kind of research could get you into. And while it is a tough subject for a lot of people because of, you know, ethics and other situations, um, I started to move on to the side where I realized that you could go into research that didn't necessarily have to do with animals all the time. So that's kind of where it all took me. And that's kind of where I fell in. So after I graduated, I'd switched over my, um, switched over my major instead of focusing on animal sciences and veterinary medicine, I just pretty much went into straight on biology. And that was pretty much my, um, my launch pad into all of this and then getting into biotech. So in the end, I figured out I would be a scientist rather than a veterinarian. I love that. <laughs> where were you studying at the time? Where were you doing your undergrad? So my undergrad, I was studying over at University of Maryland. Oh, okay. All right. So you did it all down there. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's really interesting too, because when you think about it, a lot of the viruses and stuff derive from animals. So it's kind of interesting that you kind of yeah. also took that path. <laughs> So you guys, yeah. that was actually a really big topic that we focused on for months was zoonotic diseases, because again, that's where a lot of this all comes from. So it just, it's amazing how many doors open up to you where all of a sudden I go from wanting to have my own practice to eventually wanting to be in a lab. And again, who doesn't want to be in a really cool lab coat and you're working at the lab bench and it's just the other thing that was fantastic to me about this field was that every single day is different. Mm -hmm. And when I say that, I mean that your research is forever changing. Something in your experiment might not go well the first day, or your cells might sit there and fail after you've been working on them for weeks. It just depends. But the thing is, is that no day is the same. And that's what I love. You do have routine lab work, obviously because all of us need to sit there and do, you know, the nitty gritty kind of things where you're taking care of stuff and it's just, you know, general practice. But other days, it's just, like I said, I've, it's constantly changing and I love it. That's super exciting. Yeah. <laughs> so um, what sparked 
the push for an HIV vaccine and more particularly this year. And I know we know that the HIV vaccine isn't new by any degree, um, but would it be correct to say that the development of the COVID-19 vaccine has assisted in the development of the HIV vaccine or what's kind of perhaps an overlap or connection there? So let's give a little bit of history on this. Number one, obviously, like you said, this is not new. This is not the first HIV vaccine to be worked on. HIV is very different compared to other viruses in the sense that it is a difficult one to break. Um, and the thing is, is that there have been candidates in the past but the problem is, is that, you know, while they seem successful in their early trials and their early stages, unfortunately, when they entered clinical trials, they didn't do so well. So the thing is, is that I believe it was, I want to say it was 2009. Um, there is a institute, it's IAVI. In 2009, they made a pretty wonderful breakthrough where they saw, or I should, I'm not going to say discovered, but they realized that some potent, um, they're called BN abs, which means broadly neutralizing antibodies. Now I'll explain what those mean, but they were first identified from large groups of HIV infected individuals. So this goes all the way back then. That's where this research for mRNA vaccines today is now kind of collaborating together. So you had the pieces of this puzzle kind of fitting in years later. Now, the reason being for mRNA, we have this fantastic technology that, you know, Moderna, NIAID, Pfizer, and other companies, you know, together or collaborators have worked on because it's like, you know, when you see people and they're like, oh yeah, just this one area made this vaccine. No, it's, it's several collaborations together that made these, these mRNA vaccines and this mRNA technology is not new technically either. You know, it's been researched since I believe it was the 19, I want to say 1990s. So it's not exactly new, but it's kind of new to the public in that sense. Um, but getting back to what we were talking about, what happens is, is that you have this candidate, you have mRNA technology and you have a promising bout of research on HIV broadly, broad <laughs> neutralizing antibodies, taking those together and having a vehicle candidate like mRNA can possibly sit there and get us to exactly where we want to be. So that's the hope for these vaccines, because it's not just one in development, it's several in development. So we're seeing exactly what approach is going to work the best, but it's all built off of that research in 2009. So I will say that seeing the success of the COVID-19 vaccines as an mRNA candidate gave the idea to say, hey, you know, this research on HIV from years ago was pretty promising. What if we took two things that could possibly work together to make something amazing? and help thousands, if not millions of people. I mean, I think, what was it when we were talking in our meeting, I think HIV affects nearly 38 million people worldwide. And for those of us in the US, that's, I think it's about 1.3 million. So while it might not be, you know, in the news as much as it was back, you know, when it first started in the 
you know, 1990s, it's still really important today to keep focusing on these things. So that's kind of what it builds off on. Now I can get more in depth to the science as to how this works and why broadly neutralizing antibodies might just be the key ticket along with mRNA tech to do this. Is it a little bit simpler then when you're working with, and I'm not, not I don't mean simple because nothing, it doesn't, none of it sounds simple, but um so COVID-19 is constantly mutating and changing, whereas HIV, is it the same or is it more like consistent? So it makes it a little bit easier almost to kind of get that dart in the bullseye. Is that? I'm actually glad that you asked that because here's the thing. HIV is actually a little bit more complex than, than SARS-CoV-2. And the reason being for that, um, when you are looking at viruses, you know how we have mRNA targeting, or I should say the COVID-19 vaccines targeting um, the spike protein. Yeah, um, we all know that picture, right? Yeah. Of the virus with the spikes coming out, but then when the new version came out or the new mutated, it looked a lot different, right? It had a lot more spikes on it. Is that right? Yep, exactly. So <laughs> the thing is, is that while you can have a SARS-CoV-2 spike, um, HIV, it's, it pretty much has a bunch of, um, I guess what you would, what we would call conformational epitopes and the, we can go more in depth as to how this works. But the thing is, is that genes encoding antibodies to this HIV envelope are, they're extremely and heavily mutated half the time. So that's why HIV is such a hard virus to deal with. Mm. Um, or I should say was deal, like difficult to deal with with former vaccine candidates. Because while it could target some epitopes of this virus, maybe the vaccine didn't succeed in you know, producing antibodies for all epitopes. But the great thing is about mRNA tech is that like what we did with the spike protein of SARS-CoV-2 when we first worked on these vaccines, you're able to sit there and hit that virus from all sides. So we're, we're pretty much constantly um, we're accounting for how this could possibly mutate or, or what it could possibly change about itself. So with this, we're hoping that, you know, we can hit HIV or, you know, at that virus from all different sides to be able to pretty much account for it being able to mutate, if that makes sense. So I'm, tr- I'm trying to think of how to put it. I'm so sorry. No, no, it's, it's great. I mean, it's, it's like when I, um, yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking for listeners who might not be as scientifically inclined, um, would this vaccine be more in line than with preventing HIV infections or more, more in line with managing active HIV infection? So the thing is about vaccines, vaccines are technically preventatives. They work to prevent something from happening. But that's not to sit there and say that eventually down the line, it could sit there and help manage active infections. It's just where it's something that we have to see where the science takes us. However, you know, people who have um, who have partners that might have HIV and, you know, you might feel like, you know, you can't necessarily always have like, I guess, like the how do I put it? I'm going to assume for most people that sometimes it is a worry or a concern, or, you know, sometimes um, I'm not exactly sure what, um, I guess every, 
you know, medication or preventative that's on the market right now, but you still are worried that maybe, you know, some people can't take a certain preventative, you know, some people can't afford it, whatever have you. So this would be able to help people prevent it ahead of time. Like say, if you had a partner who was HIV positive, you could take the vaccine, hoping that everything goes well with the trials, obviously you could take this vaccine and it could help protect you from any possibility of infection down the line. Now, of course, even when we look at things like COVID, where I guess what you would call the Swiss cheese model, you know, you have holes in Swiss cheese and every single slice of Swiss cheese that you put on top might sit there and cover up the previous hole, meaning, you know, a gap in protection. So paired with vaccination and taking, you know, any other medication that might help or antiviral together and combined, we could possibly bring this down where, you know, somebody, it's not even really possible for someone to transmit it, if that makes sense. Makes perfect sense. Yeah. (laughs) Cause I, I know one of the most common, um, medications, I guess what you'd call it is, is PrEP. Um, that's mostly for individuals who, no, I'm now I'm getting mixed up. It, I think it's for individuals with HIV or AIDS to prevent mm-hmm. them from transmitting to non-positive uh, like partners. I think correct. Okay. Correct. <laughs> so if you have a partner that is on prep, for example, but you, a person who is HIV negative, isn't you know, I, I I'm not gonna say um, isn't eligible, but it's not something that you would be prescribed being HIV negative. What can you do to sit there and, you know, help further along that protection? Mm -hmm. What better than maybe a vaccine that is, again, working as a preventative? Mm -hmm. So how that vaccine works, um, and there are studies like, you know, that showed like that this was really successful in macaque models because you always have to do, you know, um, preclinical studies and then move on to your, you know, your phase one trials once it, you know, is deemed safe enough for human testing. But the way that these vaccines work, um, and specifically mRNA 1644, which is the one that is developed with a bunch of different collaborators. Um, it's Moderna, it's um, NIH, um, it's got the research from um Scripps Research, um, University of Texas, George Washington University, and then of course, um, Fred Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center. It's a lot, as you can tell, it's a lot of collaborators. Um, But the way that this works is using mRNA, it teaches your body cells how to make proteins that trigger immune responses to HIV. So for example, you know how our current COVID mRNA vaccines code for the spike protein. Um, In this vaccine, um, a piece of that messenger mRNA codes for part of the HIV virus. And in the case of HIV, it's enfolded into a vector. And then pretty much what happens is once your, um, once your immune system is trained to kind of recognize that virus when it uh, encounters it, it, it pretty much is able to attack it. Now, the thing is, is that because HIV has mutated into numerous variants, kind of similar to COVID and the variants that we're dealing with right now, 
Um, the great thing is, is about mRNA is that it's, we can easily modify these. So let's say that HIV decided to sit there and take a turn and mutate in a different way. The thing is, is that we can easily take these mRNA vaccines, tweak them and account for that change. So that's why we think that maybe this candidate is a little bit better than previous vaccines. Um, and the way that that vaccine works in the sense that it induces um, these specific um, B cells, ones the broadly neutralizing antibodies that I told you guys about, um, because we saw with previous research that those broadly neutralizing antibodies were able to neutralize different genetic variants of HIV. So pairing that research together with these, we're hoping that maybe this is the key because that's been the hardest thing to break through. Yeah. A lot of trial and error though. And that's always the, the beauty of vaccine research is that uh, I don't think there's ever been one time you do a one hit wonder and <laughs> hit the nail on the head right away. Let me um, tell you, it's, it's like that all the time when we get note that we're working on another one and they're like, Hey, this didn't work. And it's like, you know, you, you pretty much have to go back to the drawing board, but that's why it's best to try different approaches. Like we are where you're not only testing one MRNA, you're testing like three or four of them. Yeah. And so you mentioned a bunch of different institutes and universities. Is there mm -hmm. any organization in particular that is leading vaccine development and do you find it's sorry this is kind of a two-part question um do you do you find the research is primarily concentrated within the u.s or are there other organizations in outside countries that are also uh making headway with this? oh absolutely i mean there are institutions all over the world you know that we will sit there and collaborate and i mean you know when you're working at a company or an institution within the U.S., a lot of the times you're sitting there and thinking, hey, it's only U.S.-based, but that's not true whatsoever. And the thing is, just like COVID-19 vaccines, you know, that was a worldwide network of working to, um, you know, that the, the, I guess when, you know, COVID first happened or uh, SARS-CoV-2 came onto the scene, you know, we had dissected that entire genome of SARS-CoV-2 within two days over the weekend, because that same, I'll, I'll never forget it, <laughs> that weekend, you get correspondence over from Wuhan and, you, you know, they're breaking everything down. And it's like, it's just working with a bunch of different areas. Now, specifically for this one, um, I don't believe that there is anything that is outside of the US at the moment because you know I wrote down everybody that was technically part of this. So like I said, you've got Scripps um, Research Institute, you've got National Institutes of Health, University of Texas at San Antonio, George Washington University, um, I guess at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center and Emory University. So those ones are all US-based um, at the moment, but there are plenty of other vaccines that are relying on international help too. So it's a collaborative effort. Nobody can take credit for, you know, saying, hey, we're the only ones that did this. It's and and you also have to sit there and account for any research that you have cited, whether it's from, you know, nature or cell or any, you know any peer reviewed journal that you're using information out of, half the time that's not always in your country either. So you have to sit there and account for that too. It's, it's an effort that spans far and wide. 
It must be so exciting. Like just going back to when you said, like you still remember that weekend when the scientists connected with you uh, from Wuhan uh, in China. Like what, like what, what did you feel like at that moment? And how many people were in your lab working at that time? And what was the energy like? Oh gosh, the, it was, I would say, oh gosh, I normally like to get in really early. Um, so I would say probably that morning, there were probably about like six to seven of us at the time. But the thing is, is that you have to think there's the assay development team, you know, you've got, and I mean, within, you know, where I am, you've got several labs all working together that, you know, aren't necessarily going to have their name on a paper. And myself, I don't, I don't work on research papers. That's not my thing. I'm not in academics and I'm not, you know, um, your hands on, you just want to get the microscope, right? Exactly. I'm the backseat in the lab, um, pretty much at the bench. Um, but that's where, (laughs) yeah, that's where I prefer to be though. That's what I love. But the thing is, is that the energy at the time, number one, you're feeling like, I'm not going to say it's surreal, but you're almost wondering, like, I guess in a sense it is surreal. And when I say surreal, I don't mean like, oh my gosh, this is so glorious. It's, it's almost like, you know, you feel like time was against you and it really was because Mm -hmm. it, it pretty much, I think I'm trying to think, was it, I don't think it was, yeah, it was declared a pandemic at that point. Because we're sitting there and, you know, hearing all the news, you know, out of Wuhan and you're like, okay, what is going to happen and what can we do? So you're racing against the clock, trying to figure things out and get this going because if, and I know it's hard to remember 2020 is kind of a blur. Mm -hmm. If you could remember what it felt like before we had vaccines, there was a, a greater sense of fear and uncertainty of even being outside half the time. You know, you're seeing lockdowns, you're seeing people, you got to stay at home, you're seeing people can't go to the grocery store, you can't do this, you can't do that. So it was just a feeling of you got to do this and you got to do it now. It doesn't matter how tired you are. It doesn't matter how many hours you got to be in the lab. And I mean, it was just, it felt like a straight 48 hours. Yeah, more cutting edge than what you're doing. And so like, it's really interesting that like it, what you're doing, like it's so cutting edge. Like you said, there's a sense of urgency. Um, and, you know, I think there's a lot of parallels with what you're doing right now, though, with the HIV vaccine. However, because it's going to impact so many people's lives um, in, you know, and with regards to you know, prolonging people's lives and in the level of intimacy that people can share with one another um, and that level of fear. But maybe people like the greater population aren't really aware of how, you know, how important this is too right now. Like it is very cutting edge. And, and, you know, we've been, I think I just wrote down when you said the first uh, breakthrough in 2009, that was like 12, 13 years ago. Yes. Yes. And some people kind of forget it you know, that that was even going on. But the thing is, is that because mRNA technology has become such a, I mean, it's at the forefront of a lot of newspapers these days, you know, and media outlets. So again, what I try to express to people is that mRNA technology is not new for us scientists. It's just new for the public. Um, But the research into HIV, this is not new by any stretch of the word. And the thing is, is that because COVID took such a 
peace at the front of our minds. Sometimes we forget that other viruses exist that are just as bad, if not worse, um, you know, and right now, you know, we still obviously are in a pandemic. I know a lot of people want to sit there and say that we're not, and that's fine. You know, if you want to sit there and say stuff like that, there's nothing I can say to change your mind. However, we are still in a pandemic. Now, are we in the same situation that we were in 2020? Absolutely not. The tables have completely changed. You know, we've got effective vaccines, we've got boosters. Now, do we need to, you know, up vaccinating, you know, more than half of the world? Absolutely. But we've come such a long way. But with that said, um, I remember when I was in the lab and Isaac can probably sit there and vouch for me too, because he's seen me talk about it on Twitter, where I was talking about, I got to put this project on hold now. I got to put this project on hold. I can't sit there and work on the HIV vaccine like I wanted to. I couldn't work on my influenza vaccine like I wanted to. Couldn't work on NEPA. You couldn't work on anything because SARS-CoV-2 took over every single thing. As soon as you thought you were making progress and you could work on another project, no, here comes, you know, beta. Here comes Delta. Here comes Omicron. And here comes Omicron and all of its, you know, three heads. So right now to be able to say that the first person, you know, got um, dosed in this study, I believe that was what, January, um, is just amazing because you know that all this time and all this effort and all this work is now starting to take, you know, it's about to take flight. So now at the moment, while these trials are still going on right now, and I believe I think they're scheduled to end in 2023. I want to say it's May, but don't quote me on that. Mm -hmm. um, so we still don't have any word as to how everything is going right now, because of course you're just waiting. Um, but in you know, I'm really excited to be able to sit there and share results when they do come out. Um. Can I, I, I want to thank you so much for um, the science background. And I'm wondering if I can just shift the conversation a little bit um, to talking a little bit about, um, she say, the intersections of, of your identity for, um, for HASIS and, and what it was like, maybe like for you as um, a, a young queer um, and, and BIPOC individual, um, and what that was like going into science and and, and what then you, um, advice you might have to other young um, queer individuals, but also specifically with the intersections around um, perhaps being a Black or Indigenous person of color that is going into the science field as well. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So really interesting thing. And maybe it's not very interesting. It's probably common knowledge at this point. In the beginning, and maybe still kind of sometimes now, this field was majorly like dominated by Caucasian cis males. And the thing is, is that times have changed, you know, sometimes for the better and sometimes for the worse, because it was very hard to, it's very hard to sit there and blaze your own path sometimes. And I say that in the sense that even when I first got into college, um, you've got some things that are kind of against you already. 
um, you're, you know, you identify as a female, you are mixed. Um, and of course, at the time when I first started college, you know, I was kind of afraid to share my identity. It wasn't exactly, I'm not gonna say it wasn't acceptable, but it wasn't widely expressed and acceptable like it is, you know, today. And even today, you still sit there and get, you know, threatened and harassed. I've had plenty of people in my, you know, DMs or in my mentions that just say some of the rudest things ever. Mm. I used to sit there and have people ask me, what does biracial mean? And why do you have that? And then there was another person that would say something like, oh, what do you expect from her? She's, you know, sit there and they'll say a slur. You know what I mean? And it's, it's difficult things like that. Or when you are, unfortunately, like for the latest example, when you are, um, I'm like, I don't know how to say if it was, well, I'm going to just call it what it was. When you're harassed to the point where you're seeing these forums talking about you and they're calling you slurs and saying, oh yeah, you know, she probably does nothing but serve coffee, you know, and her place is in the kitchen, not in the lab, you know, things like that. It's amazing that, that you're still dealing with things like this as if people cannot accept the fact that, yeah, maybe there is a, you know, BIPOC queer woman that is a scientist and is at the forefront of a lot of this. And some people I notice, um, I find it very interesting on Twitter. Some people before they knew, and some people don't fully know still, um, don't know how long they've been following me, but there are some people that will still sit there and not think that I'm a female. They'll sit there and think that I'm a man. And it's interesting because it's like, why would you automatically assume that? Mm -hmm. But that's kind of how it's been. And it has such so, a weight. I can only imagine that weight that it would add then to, you know, the work, like just moving through the world. Um, and yet you sound, I can hear your voice and you sound so light and positive and, and so full of like energy and that it's just hard to believe, you know, to hear that you're experiencing that. And I'm sorry. Hmm. Oh, you have nothing to be sorry for, because the thing is, is that in the end, nobody can sit there and take your identity away from you. And that's the best part, because no matter what those people say, it doesn't change anything that I have done. It doesn't change anything that I do. And it doesn't change anything that I will do in the future. So, yeah. And at the end of the day, too, a lot of these people who are, you know, in your mentions or in your DMs saying all these incredibly hateful things is that at the end of the day, they most likely got a vaccine developed by a female <laughs> queer racial person. And they have to deal with that. They can't choose that option. So, you know. I just licked my finger and like held it in the air like a <laughs> No, I think that is so amazing. And you are such a huge role model for so many, I think, young, uh, young people, that young girls, young um, biracial girls that are looking to get into science and... Um, you know, I know like, well, just personally, my, my daughter now I'm cis and I'm, I'm white and, but my, my eldest daughter is studying uh, microbiology right now at university and I she's so excited about it and she loves it. And, and, you know, and, and it's, it is nice to hear, you know, see more 
female identifying people that are getting into science, you know, and really breaking that ceiling. Absolutely. I think there was a great article that came out. I can't remember what, um, what media outlet did it, but it was highlighting all of the female scientists that are, you know, breaking boundaries when it comes to, you know, science and technology. And the thing is, is that I love to see more of it because when I was growing up, I was not seeing a lot of it at all. You weren't seeing female scientists leads. You were seeing more so that maybe they were, you know, a, I'm not going to say a co-chair, but Mm -hmm. they weren't exactly at the forefront of it all. Now you're seeing that women are breaking boundaries and even non-binary individuals too. It's no longer just a, you know, straight and narrow road as to who can be in this field and who's going to make scientific breakthroughs. And that's the great thing. The other thing is, is the diversity now in the workplace and in the labs and even in our labs that I've seen, it's just amazing. And I love it Um, because if I could tell anybody anything, you know, who is, whether you are, you know, queer, you're, you know, part of the LGBTQ, you know, spectrum, you're just, and anybody who is a person of color, it's, you feel like you've got every single obstacle against you because when I say that you're going to have to work harder, sometimes it's, you feel that way. You know, someone can do the same thing as you, but you have to work three times harder to get to that same point. You know, it's kind of like the line drawn in the sand is a little bit further away for you. You Um, I think that's a huge point that should be highlighted here, mm -hmm. that it is incredible what you're doing, but recognizing and acknowledging that everything that you're doing has, um, you know, you've, you've you've not only done the work, but you've exceeded and and, and excelled and had to go so much, you know, so much further beyond and above um, to get the same kind of recognition or the same seat Mm -hmm. table. Mm -hmm. And it's a true credit to you. Hopefully we'll see your name on that great list of amazing scientists in a few years. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And it's also, it's also so important. um, I know, Sin, you mentioned this a little bit earlier, but it's so important for young individuals, especially folks who are pursuing their own careers to see individuals like yourself, Chise, um, you know, living, breathing, doing the work, doing the hard work and getting to where you want to be and deserve to be. um, And they can actually see themselves in positions like yours, um, which I think is really important. And it's a really important aspect. Um, I find in particularly within STEM, I mean, I work primarily within the communication side, but um, so many people just don't want to talk about their identities. And I Mm -hmm. fully respect that 110%. But there's an aspect of it that is so critical at this point, because we need to be able as within STEM to see ourselves as, as queer people in this field, Um, which of course puts a very, dangerous, unfortunately, onus on certain individuals like yourself to be open and to be visible, which comes with, you know, a lot of negativity. But in the end, there's a lot of positivity there that helps support uh, generations to come. So it's definitely, definitely not going unnoticed. That's for sure. Oh, I totally agree. You know, one point in time, I used to be afraid of, you know, of expressing myself and letting the world know 
exactly who I was and what I was. Now I, it it's amazing how, you know, I will sit there and I will have the LGBTQ flag on my keychain that I wear to work every day. I will sit there and I will talk to my colleagues about it. You know, it's it's just amazing how things have evolved in that sense where, you know, you once tried to hide from the world exactly who you were and what you were, but now it's like, like I told you guys before, nobody can sit there and take that away from you. So you either kind of accept me for all that I am or you don't, but one of them is pretty much not my problem anymore. Exactly. And the conversations are so important and, you know, it's just so nice. Like when people are open and you can have these great conversations and enlighten people, because we do hear, you know, as educators, um, people don't understand the intersections. They don't understand what it's like to be trying to do this role, but then having, you know, on the outside of that, those, those microaggressions or overt, like you said, hate speech and that, and then having to carry that with you as well. And that's something, as a cis white person of privilege, you don't know, and you, you can have no idea what that would feel like, but Mm -hmm. it's hard to have those conversations. Um, but I'm so grateful for those who are, who are able to have those conversations to help people, you know, become more cognizant and, and, and aware. Oh, absolutely. And now, you know, for work, for example, we have trainings and seminars, um, to be able to like go through with, you know, like, I guess helping people understand how to respect people that, you know, identify as different things. So it's, it's come a long way. Um, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think of what you would call it. It's, I guess it would be kind of like, it's not necessarily ethics training, but it's, um, it opens inclusion. the doors inclusion to training or that like, that's what we do here as well. Like the inclusion yeah. training and going in and, and helping people get comfortable around sharing mm-hmm. pronouns. And actually I wanted to ask you as well, mm-hmm. because you use she, they pronouns and how does that go over in the lab and at work and that, do you use they quite often and is it well-received and um, sharing your pronouns? Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's been very well received. What I love is that when I first started, um, I'll never forget my boss asking me what pronouns I went by. And I was like, this is interesting. Nobody in the past that I've ever worked with has ever asked me this. And that kind of made me feel like, Hey, I'm seen, I'm in a place where, you know, I can probably be comfortable and it just grew from there. But it is very well received because the thing is, is that I have coworkers that have specific pronouns that they want to go by as well. And no one ever assumes people you will sit there and will ask just to be, you know, to make sure that you're comfortable, especially if they're meeting you for the first time. So it's things like that that make it a great workplace. And that's what I love about where I am and how the field of, I mean, excuse me, I should say that this field is just changing it's becoming that much more diverse. And that's why, you know, anybody who might've had, you know, certain concerns or were withdrawn or kind of uncertain about going in this field because of that, just know that it is not the same as it was, you know, years and years ago, it's completely different and it's still sitting there and changing and progressing in a good way. 
Yeah, and only time can change that. So you know, I mean, who knows what five years will will do? And especially to all industries, you know, I think everyone's really, really starting to pave their own ways and really make more, mm -hmm. uh, put more energy <laughs> into <laughs> inclusion. So I, I think that's important. But uh, but we just really really want to say thank you, Chise, for taking the time out of your very very busy schedule to uh, to join with us and talk us through all these things that uh, you know not a whole lot of. Uh, news articles and media sources are talking about so we we appreciate you giving us the insider scoop oh my gosh absolutely and like i said whenever we get results from these first you know right now it's just safety and immunogenicity um you know trials we're still in the early stages but based on what we knew of like you know the smaller study where 97 percent of individuals responded with antibodies against hiv you know previously before from the 2009 research. Now I'm hoping that we're going to see even better this time around. So by all means, keep a lookout for results because you know, I will definitely be posting them and talking yeah. about it. And you can <laughs> find, uh, find all your, your uh, science communication work on your Twitter at uh, Sailor Roo Scout, and we'll make sure that's tagged in the uh, show notes. So, so hopefully uh, you get some interest there. You guys are awesome. And thank you so much again for having me. And if there's anything else that I can do for you guys in the near future and far future, anything that you might need, you know, I'm always here. Awesome. Appreciate thank you that. so much. I look forward to hearing the updates. Yeah. That's, that's all the time we have today, folks. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Hey Sis. The conversation doesn't have to stop here, though. If you would like to get in touch with us to ask us a question or share your story on a future episode, you can email us at connect at simplygoodform.com or visit us on our website at www.pacis.com. 